0: But our topic is higher life theology. That's what we're, where we're going today. And uh, pardon the, the delay this morning. i trying to do this through my iPad so I can mark it up with my eye pencil. So I'm to, I switched it, so I'm going to do it off my MacBook, so I won't be able to mark it up. And I also forget which slides are coming next, so I'm going to learn as we go, because I put this together. Oh, okay, there we go. That's, that's the book that I, I wrote uh, several years ago. John MacArthur wrote The Afterword. And I'm going to give you a survey, I'm gonna a flyover of this, of this book uh, in the next hour or so, so here's here's how I, I used to tell my story of how I well, became a Christian and grew up in the as as a Christian. I'd say I became a Christian or I got saved when I was eight, I think, and I surrendered when I was 12. Have you guys ever heard someone tell their their testimony that way, where there are two distinct steps? Some say saved and surrendered. There are different words you can use for it, but have you ever heard people explain there are two steps in my story? Yes? Okay? Uh, I grew up hearing that, so that's kind of the language I adopted, and I assumed assume that was the normal way to talk. Everyone else did. And and then other preachers would kind of reinforce that by... Um, sometimes they'd, give a, they'd preach a sermon, and at the end they would call for a response, and the response was... Dedicate yourself or surrender or something do something significant. So at this you're already a Christian, but at the second stage, do something else that helps you advance decisively to the next step, next stage. So that's what I grew up with. That that was a framework. And I I tried to do this to, you know, get saved, get serious. I tried tried, but just didn't work. I was frustrated. Because I was wanting to be more holy, and I knew I was still sinful, so i 'm frustrated i 'm disillusioned thinking well they 're promising this, and it 's not happening and I started to get suspicious because didn't this teaching didn 't seem to match with what I was reading in scripture. so what I ended up doing is uh, I went to a college that taught this, and I almost got expelled from that college because I stopped believing it <laughs> long story i 'll skip that. Uh, then I went to a graduate school where I started writing research papers on this topic, and then it kind of snowballed into a Ph.D. dissertation, uh, and then a big book, and then this little book. So I've I, I just given this a lot of thought, and I'm at the stage now where I would just say this, this model of Christian living is not good. <laughs> Look at the bottom part of the slide. Here's what I almost titled the book, Why Let Go and Let God is a Bad Idea, or... Why Higher Life Theology's Quick Fix to Your Struggle with Sin Will Not Result in a Higher Life, Deeper Life, Victorious Life, More <laughs> Abundant Life, or Anything Other Than a Misguided, Frustrated, Disillusioned, and or Destroyed Life. <laughs> the publisher decided not to go with that. But I, I like that title. Um, so here's a here's plan for this morning, three steps. So first I'm going to just tell the story. Where did this teaching come from? Uh, I don't want to be guilty of what's called a genetic fallacy, where you say, well, if it came from this bad source over here, therefore everything it says is wrong. Not, that's not what I'm going to do. My point is to say, historically, here's how we got from there to here. That's helpful to know. So along, as I'm going, go ahead and raise your hand. I'll stop and ask for questions as we go. This is a small enough group. That'd be easy to do. Okay, so let's start with the, the story of higher life theology. Don't let this gloss your eyes over. I'll explain. So very top is Wesleyan perfectionism. That influences the Holiness Movement, which has a couple branches, Methodist Perfectionism and Oberlin Perfectionism. All of this influences the Higher Life Movement, which then buds flowers into the Higher Life Theology or the the early Keswick Movement, Keswick Theology. And I'm going to explain each one of these steps as we go, so don't have to get it all in this one block here. Let me just start at the top there with Wesley. So John Wesley is the father of views on progressive sanctification, on Christian transformation, that chronologically separate justification from progressive sanctification, meaning the point you become a Christian and then the the Christian growth, the significant Christian growth. He was the father of all these different views that take those two things and separate them chronologically. That's John Wesley. And what he taught is Christian perfectionism. I'm going to show you at least five uh, graphs or displays that look like this. Let me just explain the first one here. The cross is supposed to represent the moment of regeneration and conversion, repentance and faith, when a person becomes a Christian in real time. And and then what follows, we notice the, the long arrows are showing the Christian life. In the Wesleyan view of progressive sanctification... When you become a Christian, that is the first work of grace. And there's a second work of grace that typically happens at a later time. could be days, months, years, but chronologically later. And the first stage is a defeated life, and the second stage is victorious. Now, in the Wesleyan view... Oh, my. I just realized... I put in the wrong slide. Oh, I didn't look over my slides carefully. Um, don't take a picture of that. <laughs> that, that is the Pentecostal view. Um, here's what it should say at the top. Um, you can't see my mouse. At the top, it should say... So the, the first is... You could say defeated or to say non-sanctified. But where it says crisis... Don't say spirit baptism, it's called a crisis, and the result is entire sanctification. Here are different terms that Wesley uses. Entire sanctification, Christian perfection, perfect love toward God and man, um, perfect love, holiness, pure intentions, full salvation, second blessing, second rest, dedicating all of your life to God. All of those are terms that Wesley uses for the second what results in the second stage from the crisis okay that 's that's, that's Wesleyan perfectionism and John Wesley is the primary proponent of that. Two of his successors took it further, John Fletcher and adam clark and and they started to use more Pentecostal language, especially John Fletcher and, oh, both of them a lot Now they influence what 's called the holiness movement. Now, that's distinct from Wesleyan perfectionism, but related. Here's how they're related. Their view of progressive sanctification is very similar, uh, but but this holiness movement is blending with American revivalism and much more non-denominational. So it's kind of a a grassroots movement. And there are two main wings of it. You see it here, Methodist perfectionism and Oberlin perfectionism. So have you heard the name Phoebe Palmer, maybe? Uh, She used to be really popular in the 1800s. Uh, she had this thing called altar theology uh, where you come forward and dedicate and lay yourself on the altar, um, really popular in, in American camp meetings. So that was one version of the holiness movement. Another is Oberlin Perfectionism, and uh, the key guys here are Charles Finney and Asa Mahan. Okay, some of you have heard those names? So when you hear the word Finney, you know, bad, right? <laughs> really bad. Uh, Basically, Pelagian, uh, he, he, he said, this is a direct quote, it's, it's self-evident that entire obedience to God's law is possible on the ground of natural ability. No way. way. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm quoting from his lectures on systematic theology, page 204. So uh, very much these guys took the holiness movement to this more man-centered approach of you can do this, dedicate yourself, and um, it, and it's also part of the camp meetings as well. Now, all of this influences the higher life movement. So you can see in the middle of the screen, oh, are you still with me? Okay, and where it says higher life movement, Boardmans and Smiths. Okay, so all of this that's above that is influencing that, and all of that influences the early Keswick movement. So let me talk about the higher life movement. That's 1858 to 1875. The early Kazakh movement begins in 1875. So the key guys, key people for the higher life movement are William E. Boardman, and then a couple, Hannah Whittle Smith and Robert Purcell Smith. They're married married couple. Now you probably know one of those names. Hannah Whittle Smith. She wrote a book called The Christian Secret of Happy Life. Is that right? The, yes, the Christian's secret of a happy life. And, and in that book, she argues that there are essentially two steps uh, to victorious Christian living. The first is entire surrender, let go. And the second is absolute faith, let God. That's where that, that idea became more and more popular, was through her teaching. And she and her husband were going to be part of the early Keswick movement, but right before the first Keswick convention in 1875... By the way, Keswick's a place in and England, where they would uh, have uh, meetings for people to come in the summers. So that's why it's called Keswick Theology. It's associated with the Keswick Convention. And she and her husband were going to be part of that. But right before that happened, her husband fell doctrinally and morally. So that's when the higher life movement ended. Uh, and later, uh, he was persistent in unrepentant adultery. And then he apostatized and became an agnostic and then Hannah apostatized, lost her interest in the higher life, rejoined the Quakers, and embraced universalism and religious pluralism. And her book is still all over Christian bookstores. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh but really what, what institutionalized the message of the Smiths was the Keswick Convention. And that's the enduring legacy. So I'm gonna be using the terms higher life theology and Keswick theology synonymously. Higher life theology is a little more intuitive, uh it makes more sense because it's associated with living the higher life. So let me uh, show you some names of people who popularized Keswick theology. You may know some of them. I'm going to go slowly through this list here. So T.D. Harford Battersby and Robert Wilson, you probably don't know those names, they co-founded the Keswick Convention. So they're two of the main first leaders. J. Elder Cumming, he was known for being uh, a rascal, a very unpleasant person, and then he went to Keswick, and he was changed, and he was kind of like their exemplar, of, uh, and he spoke at a bunch of their conventions. Evan Hopkins, probably the foremost theologian, formative theologian for the, the Keswick movement. H.W. Webb Peplo, probably their finest orator. H.C.G. Mool, you might know that name. He's the most prestigious scholar associated with the early Keswick movement. He was a principal of Ridley Hall in Cambridge, Bishop of Durham. He's like the only like real academic associated with this whole thing. Uh, F.B. Meyer, maybe you know that name. He wrote over 70 popular booklets and books. He helped spread higher life theology to America, especially through D.L. Moody's Northfield Conferences. Charles Fox was a well-known poet at the time. Andrew Murray, bet you've heard his name. So he wrote over 250 devotional books, and many of them are good, um, but what pulses through them is Keswick theology uh, uh, all throughout them. Uh, you surely have heard of Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael, and now you're getting nervous because you're like, whoa, whoa, I named my son Hudson or something like this. Like, like A lot of these people are good good guys. Um, obviously, Hudson Taylor's wonderful missionary, and so is Amy Carmichael, my one of my daughters just read her biography, and I, I didn't bring this up. The Keswick part, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, really, actually, Amy Carmichael was the adopted daughter of Top Line Robert Wilson, co-founder of Keswick. So she was Keswick's first missionary. Uh, Frances Ridley Havergal. Does that sound familiar? What What does she do? She wrote something. She wrote hymns. That's right. And some of them you like to sing, like, Like a River Glorious is God's Perfect Peace, which I just, I can't do it because I know what she meant. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, Take My Life and Let It Be. Uh, I'm ruined. I'll stop. I'll, I'm <laughs> 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 um, just if it helps your conscience when you sing hymns like that, I've, I've applied different hermeneutic towards hymns. So when I'm reading books, it's all about what did the author intend to say. But for hymns, yeah, otherwise you can't sing so many good things, right? Okay, so uh, last line, W.H. Griffith Thomas, Charles Trumbull, and Robert McQuilkin, these all led the victorious life movement in America. So it's not the same as the Keswick movement, but they're sister organizations. And all three of them had a huge influence in America. Uh, W.H. Griffith Thomas uh, co-founded Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, Charles Trumbull, well-known for his writings on the higher life, Robert McQuilkin. Uh, he... Columbia Bible School, that's what it is. Um, it's, it's, now it's called Columbia International University, but he founded Columbia Bible School in South Carolina, and that a legacy still endures. So the, these are people who popularized this, and there are more. This is probably the top 15 or so. Now, I'm going to come back to Keswick theology in a moment to explain exactly what it is, but let me just keep going and follow the trajectory. I started with Wesleyanism and just showed how all these different theologies and movements influence Keswick theology. Now, I'm going to keep tracing that and to show you some other theologies, movements that have flowed out of Keswick theology. So one is the CMA, Christian and Missionary Alliance, founded by A.B. Simpson. So his view... Of sanctification was similar but not identical to the Wesleyan and Keswick views, and he didn't. Uh, he was not a Pentecostal. He didn't believe in, that speaking in tongues is an evidence of that crisis. Another uh, successor of Keswick theology is Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. So the first three leaders of that school are D.L. Moody, R.A. Torrey, and James M. Gray, and so Moody he's a harder one to peg. He's kind of broad, broad, broad. Uh, he, if he were today, he'd be almost Rick Warrenish in his just broad, lots of influence. So he wasn't, you know, real strong on Kazakh theology, but he welcomed it into his Northfield conference and that helped it spread. And then the way he would talk about his own experience, he'd basically say Christians should be baptized with the Holy Spirit to have power to serve God and others. That's how he, he would, he would share his own story. R.A. Torrey would say that spirit baptism is a crisis that occurs after a person's already a Christian and it results in more power for service. Now, interestingly, the early Pentecostal literature, which starts in the 1900s, quotes R.A. Torrey more than any other non Pentecostal. And then James M. Gray uh, is he, he's a Moody for most of his life, he emphasized spirit filling as the secret key to victorious living and spirit anointing as the means for power and service. And then let's talk about Pentecostalism. This one's interesting. It's a product of all of this. Wesleyan perfectionism, holiness movement, higher life theology, A.B. Simpson, D.L. Moody, R.A. Torrey, all of it just kind of snowballs. And now I can show you this. Is that the right one? Yes, okay. That's the correct slide. So... this is the, like the classic Assemblies of God view Pentecostalism. There's different varieties here. Uh, let me explain the two of the main differences. Some will, will speak of first blessing, second blessing, and some will say first, second, and third blessing. So the way I have put it here is kind of first and second. But if you have a third blessing, it'll go like this. Your first uh, blessing is the conversion for, for salvation. Second is this crisis for sanctification of holiness, and then third to be the crisis of spirit baptism for power and service. All right, so that if you're going to three steps, those are the three. But the, the, what they have, all have in common is that there's a second something that happens when you become victorious, and that's called spirit baptism. So spirit baptism happens after conversion, and then the evidence of that is speaking in tongues. So that's Pentecostalism. And this, by the way, didn't even exist until December 31st, 1900. That's how historians date to when Pentecostalism began. And then a fourth successor of Keswick theology is Dallas Theological Seminary. Now I should qualify, I should have done this earlier. Uh, CMA, Moody Bible Institute in Dallas today aren't like this. Uh, So I've got friends who teach at Moody and they're Calvinists. Uh, soteriologically uh, I've got friends at Dallas who are Calvinists soteriologically and they've rejected what this but I'm talking about originally their roots and, and I'm mentioning them because they have had a massive influence on um, uh, evangelicalism in America and worldwide um, so this, there's actually a connection here with Dallas and with this church so I might know more about your church than you do here uh, I'll tell you a story uh, first, I've got to back up and tell you about these guys. So Lewis Berry Chafer, the protege, protege of C.I. Schofield. Have you heard of the Schofield Reference Bible? Well, that helped uh, really embed Keswick theology in many people's theology because it's in, it's in the Schofield Reference Bible, and he taught it to Lewis Berry Chafer. Chafer is the one who founded Dallas Theological Seminary, and, and he would give a lecture every year to the incoming seminary students, which became a book called He That Is Spiritual. And in that book... He would distinguish three types of people. So all people are in one of three categories. Natural, meaning you don't have the spirit, you're not a Christian. And the next two are different kinds of Christians. The first kind is carnal, and the next is spiritual. So carnal Christian is stage one, spiritual is stage two. And his emphasis was Christians, you need to move from carnal to spiritual. You need to stop being a carnal Christian and become a spiritual Christian. And he would give these lectures, and here this is uh, the categories he gives in his book, He That Is Spiritual, Uh, different ways to describe the carnal Christian, those who abide not, those who walk in darkness, those who walk as men, those who walk after the flesh, those who have the Spirit in them but not upon them, those who are carnal, those who are not filled with the Spirit. So they're all Christians, but they're just not the best kind. So, the okay, I mean, he wouldn't say it like that. He would he'd say they need to dedicate themselves to become spiritual. And spiritual would be those who abide in Christ, walk in the light, walk by the Spirit, walk in newness of life, have the Spirit in and upon them. And they're spiritual, they're filled with the Spirit. So, pretty strong distinction there. So, here's how the Chaferian view would look. So, when you become a Christian at conversion, you're a carnal, you've accepted Christ as Savior. At a second, point you dedicate yourself and you become spiritual you accept Christ as lord and that's when progressive sanctification begins in earnest and you note that kind of wavy upward line that's signifying that christian growth is gradual it doesn't all happen like in wesleyan perfectionism or keswick where it says zoom took the elevator to the top and you're there you're not sinning this recognizes no there's you're going to still be sinning and you're going to be wrestling with it but you're going to grow but still you notice it's a two-stage approach there's a chronological gap between conversion and that second something. And they don't call it spirit baptism. So the, the Chaferian view is real careful to say spirit baptism happens at conversion. They call it dedication. Did any of you grow up in this framework? Some over here? Yeah? Okay. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, where am I going here? I don't want to get too far ahead, but see at the bottom there? John Walford and Charles Ryrie. So those are successors or leaders at Dallas Seminary who continue this emphasis. And I, I mentioned a moment ago that this connects to Grace Church. Do any of you know how it connects? How it connect? Well, Dr. John wrote contrary. He wrote the two books. Yeah. Countering. Okay. Zooks. So there's this lordship salvation controversy. That's what you're talking about? And actually, it goes back pretty far, but this is in the 1900s. In 1919, Lewis Barry Chafer uh, wrote his view, and B.B. Warfield demolished it, uh, it really well. He reviewed his book. Uh, and I, I wrote like an 80-page paper on Warfield in graduate school, and I was ready to name a son Warfield. I never got a son. <laughs> I have four daughters. Uh, But what a great name that would be, Warfield. Uh, In the 50s, uh, Stephen Barabbas, a historian of the Keswick movement, uh, wrote, and John Murray, a New Testament professor at Westminster in Philadelphia, responded. So there's already a history of this kind of back, forth, back, forth. And then it happened again uh, in the 80s and 90s. So a couple guys at Dallas Seminary in particular, Charles Ryrie and Zane Hodges, started writing. Now, they're not the same, so... Charles Ryrie's bad on this, and Zane Hodges is really, really, really bad. Uh, Let's just stick with with Ryrie. So Ryrie, um, I'll give you the title of his his first book here. He writes Balancing the Christian Life, and then later on, what's the title of his? It's So Great Salvation, What It Means to Believe in Jesus Christ. That came out in 1989. And John MacArthur wrote several books on this. The Gospel According to Jesus, which I think it's in his third or fourth edition now. Uh, And then he wrote The Gospel According to the Apostles. I think it was called Faith Works. And now he's got a third one called The Gospel According to Paul. And multiple editions for all these. He's been going at this for a long time. And it basically comes down to this question, must Christ be Lord to be Savior? And all these two-step views of progressive sanctification would say, well, it's possible to tell your salvation story the way that I used to. I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was age eight, and I surrendered when I was 12. It's a two-step approach where I get saved, and later I get serious. And the Chaferian view, which Charles Ryrie espouses, was really strong on this, to say that's necessary to hold that distinction, because if you don't, You'll be adding something to faith. And if you add something to faith, that's another gospel. You might think I'm overstating it. Uh, I'm going to quote Ryrie just so you hear him. Uh, So he says the answer to the question, must Christ be Lord to be Savior? He says the answer is no. Quote, the importance of this question cannot be overstated in relation to both salvation and sanctification. The message of faith only... And the message of faith plus commitment of life cannot both be the gospel. Therefore, one of them is a false gospel and comes under the curse of perverting the gospel or preaching another gospel, Galatians 1, 6 9. And this is a very serious matter. As far as sanctification is concerned, if only committed people are saved people, then where is there room for carnal Christians? End quote. So, remember that framework I showed you a moment ago, this? That's just bedrock for the Chaferian view, that there are Christians who fit firmly in one of those columns, carnal or spiritual. And if you preach a gospel that calls on people to surrender to Christ as their master, their king, their sovereign, that's faith plus commitment. So this Really got heated in evangelical circles in the '80s and '90s. This is when I was growing up, and I remember hearing some of my pastoral leaders siding with Ryrie, and I was confused. And fortunately, one of my pastors, my first uh, pastor, really mentored me. Starting at around age 12, I kept in contact with him. His name's Mike Harding, and he's a he's a reformed brother on these matters, and he helped me through my teen years. Uh, even though I lived in different places, we kept in contact, and he would send me books and articles, and he, he was my lifeline. And I, I, I could have gotten sucked into this. Uh, fortunately, I didn't. But I can see how appealing this, this framework is, and once you've adopted the framework, you're going to talk and think like Ryrie does there because it's going to sound like MacArthur's gospel preaching is adding to the gospel if this is your framework. But if you define your terms, he says faith and faith plus commitment, just back up and say, what is faith? Well, that answers the question. Uh, Faith is, I am unreservedly trusting Christ, the whole person. Who is he? He's not just Savior. He's King of the universe. I'm I'm, I'm unreservedly trusting him, which in the act of faith includes necessarily I'm laying down my arms of rebellion. Okay, I'm I'm getting ahead. I'm already critiquing. I'm supposed... I'm getting away from myself here. I'm just telling you historically how we got from there to here. Uh, sorry, the critique is coming at the end. Uh, so we, that was part one. Tell the story. Let me just pause right there. That was a super fast flyover. But did that click for any of you? You want to follow up with specific questions over here? Yeah. Um, I know convention still exists. Yeah. Did, do you know if they still the yeah. His question is. The Keswick Convention still exists. Do they still hold to the Keswick theology? In 2018, I lived in England for, 18 months, for, for eight months, six months, and we visited the Keswick Convention. And I got to interview one of the leaders there and asked them if he'd read my books on Keswick theology. And I published an interview on my, my blog, and they basically said, yeah, we uh, we've read your work, and we think you're right. So, I mean, they're inviting... John Carson, Sinclair Ferguson—they're—they're—they're uh, they're, they're not what they used to be. The change in so when I analyzed the Keswick theology, I called it the early Keswick movement, and I, I dated it the beginning, 1875 to 1920. From the 1920s on, there started to be a gradual shift, which became more decisive in the 50s with uh, uh, Graham Scroggie, and then John Stott started coming, and he really started moving it when he gave his lectures on Romans uh, 6, 7, 8. And really, since 80s, 90s to present, it has not been what it was. So, good question. Other questions? Ma'am? Uh, that last one that you read, that was referring to Shakespearean theology. Do you want me to pull it up? Yeah, the one that you were just at, right? This one? Uh huh. Yeah. It talks about like there's a Christian. Right. Okay, my guess, I'm going to pull up Logos here. Uh, sorry, I wasn't planning to do this, but here you go. Um, my guess is they're thinking John 14. You probably can't read that. Is that big enough for you guys in the back to see? Okay. So John fourteen seventeen, Jesus says, The spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Uh, I don't know if you know Greek on the right here, you can see there are two different prepositions here. Um, and so uh, para and en, with you and in you. Here's my take on this. The new covenant is better than the Old Covenant, and that the nature of the believer to the Holy Spirit is better. It goes from with to in for all New Covenant Christians, not just some. What what the Chaferian view is using that wording to say, well, that's not for all New Covenant Christians, it's just for the second stage of New Covenant Christians. That's my guess of where that's coming from. Did you have another question? For the first stage Christians, does that mean that you don't really reference sin and the pursuit of sanctification? Then, therefore, you can barely believe that your blessing of the Holy Spirit is going to be naturally come from you, and you will be saved if you already are saved. If you're living a life that's still very quiet. Like, I'm very confused. I don't know if I could repeat your question. Are you saying? In, given this framework, how would you preach or teach or minister to someone in the carnal Christian category? Yeah. Like it's, it's confusing to me that they to. Yeah. So here's the the mindset of of ministering to just people in general. If you see people in three categories—non saved, natural, carnal, and spiritual—then it's like you're when you're preaching or teaching, you've got a double barrel shotgun, and you're aiming at the non-Christians, the natural, and the carnal. So natural needs to go natural to carnal. Carnal needs to go carnal to spiritual. Ma'am. So I have a question. Um, are you familiar with the hyper-grace movement? Hyper-grace movement. Yeah. Say more. Okay. What's that? Oh, I, I don't know. So their, their whole um, view would be they just stay within the positional truths and they don't live in light of the gospel. It's all gospel, gospel, gospel. Do they call themselves hyper-grace? Because who would call themselves hyper or anything? Oh, okay. okay. So, so that's your label. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't know anything about them. Tolian Chavision? Oh, oh. He's just... So if someone said like Tolian Chavision? Yes. Okay. Who? Okay. Hyper Grace? That... Who's calling him that? So reform people, so it's a it's a label they don't hold. Okay, all right. Thanks. Oh i i am familiar with the theology. And yeah, so what's happening there, I think, is overemphasizing justification and underemphasizing truths about progressive sanctification. It's like an they don't like striving Yeah. So I think we should be completely comfortable to speak however the Bible does, which is filled with imperatives, and says that God blesses obedience. Mm-hmm. That's just Bible. And if, if people are going to say, we can't talk that way because that's going to you know, not be full of grace enough, then I think your gr- grace theology's off. Okay, I was just yeah. for a connection to see if there's... Yeah, I don't know if that connects to Keswick. Yeah, okay. sir. I know that uh, Bill Bright Campus Crusade for Christ greatly popularized yes. that threefold category. he did. Uh, do you know, you know, car, uh, natural, carnal, spiritual? Do you know where Crew is today? Yeah. Have they repudiated? Okay, that? so he's talking about Campus Crusade for Christ, or called Crew. I was teaching at the Crew headquarters a class on Romans like ten years ago, and I forgot where I was. And I was teaching through Romans, and I got into this, and I started going off on Bill Bright, and his. And someone says, "Look over there," and there was like a full. Uh, ceiling to, to floor picture of him. I forgot where I was. <laughs> and they're like, that's okay. We understand. We agree with you now. Uh, but uh, yeah. So Campus Crusades have this track they would give out, and it would have like these pictures of, you know, a carnal Christian making, putting himself on, the, or somehow making Christ Lord. Very much using this, this phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, today, they do not hold that but there's actually a, a little war going on of woke versus anti-woke within them now, so pray for them. Uh, there are many good people within it, uh, but I'm not sure what's going to happen. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, I think one of the scriptures that they use to defend this very new sacrifice, dedication, is Romans 12. Correct. So Romans 12.1, yep. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies. Present. It's an error. It's an active imperative. So the idea is because... They'd say the heiress tense form means that it's a once for all time act, and therefore you should come forward and present yourself, uh, which is, I think, misusing how the Greek tense form works. I you going to show how to I think it's in my notes coming up, and uh, I'm happy to talk more, but that might be something we talk about offline. I don't want to lose everyone. Yes, ma'am. Why is there a debate about progressive why sanctification? Mm -hmm. She's asking, why is this even a debate? Romans 8, 13 says what it says. Uh, Here's why it's a debate, because people debate what those words mean. You, You quoted the word flesh. So in the Keswick theology model, they define and describe flesh differently than I think what Paul intends. So they would, the Keswick theology view would say Living according to the flesh means you're letting your sinful, the sinful part of you, reign. And so their view of a person is you've got a flesh and a spirit, and one or the other is either fully in control at any given time. It's like a light switch is either fully on or fully off. And neither of them actually ever transforms. It's just who's in control. And they're saying if you, if you live according to the flesh, you're saying, well, that says you'll die, which implies you'll go to hell, which means there's no carnal Christian. That's how you're reading it. And they don't read it that way. They read it in light of Romans 6, 7, and 8, and, and they, they view Romans 8 as the triumphalistic stage 2 paradigm of living, not this is what all Christians do. I'm trying to be like, if there was someone who was here who was a Keswick theologian, I'd want them to be able to say, You're being fair to what I believe. I agree with you, sister. Uh, But, like with so many doctrines, uh, there are different ways of understanding how it all coheres. And that's why we're debating it. Is that a frustrating answer for you? Yeah. No, this existed before Pentecostalism. Yeah, but it influenced Pentecostalism. <laughs> okay. Yes, sir. Real quick, uh, in stage one, what is it, by the word defeated? You're sinning. You that on your slide? Yeah, you're you're sinning. Defeated means you're sinning. Oh, I see. Okay. okay. Like you're not winning. You're not. Yeah. Okay. Any other question about the story? Second row. Yeah, it's First Corinthians two verses about fourteen through three five. That's the passage where we get carnal spiritual, which I plan to talk about when I when I critique it. Yeah, we're going there. If we, maybe, yeah. All right, you ready? guys ready? Part two. Again, this isn't the critique. I'm just going to explain more carefully what higher life theology is. This is the set up for a higher life theology conference at the Keswick Convention. Five days. Day one is the diagnosis, sin, so it's like a spiritual clinic. Day two is the cure, God's provision for victorious Christian living. Day three is the crisis for the cure, consecration. Day four is the prescription, spirit filling. And day five is the mission, powerful Christian service, especially foreign missions. Okay, so let me just jump right into their their view of of how they describe Christians. Everything I'm going to tell you here is from their writings, and I've read all of them that, that are published, all the sermons, and I've pulled out their own dichotomy of category one, category two. Six slides, so hang with me here. Carnal and spiritual. Justified but no crisis of sanctification versus justified and a crisis of sanctification. Justification actual, factual, Sanctification possible versus sanctification actual and experiential, functional. Receive Christ by faith as your righteousness. Receive Christ by faith as your holiness. Free from sin's penalty, free from sin's power. First blessing, second blessing, followed by more blessings. First stage, second stage. Average, normal. Constant defeat, constant victory. Expect defeat, surprised by victory. Expect victory, surprised by defeat. Life in the flesh, life in the spirit. Not abiding in Christ, abiding in Christ. Have life, have life more abundantly. Spirit indwelt, spirit baptized and spirit filled. Spirit indwelt versus Christ indwelt. Christ is Savior versus Christ as both Savior and Lord. Believer, disciple. Out of fellowship, communion with God. In fellowship, communion with God. Headship, in Christ positionally. Fellowship, in Christ experientially. The self-life, Romans 7. The Christ life, Romans 8. Spiritual bondage, spiritual liberty, duty life, love life, restless worry, perfect peace and rest, experientially pre-Pentecost versus post-Pentecost, no power for service versus power for service, virtual fruitlessness, abundant fruitfulness, stagnation, perpetual freshness, feebleness, strength, lower life, higher life, shallow life, deeper life, Trying, trusting, life of struggle and works versus the life of rest of faith. The unsurrendered life versus the life of consecration. The life lacking blessing versus the blessed life. Liberated from Egypt but still in the wilderness, in the land of Canaan. And the Christian life as it ought not to be, the Christian life as it ought to be. There you go. So again, like the Chaferian view, three categories of people the natural person the non-christian without the spirit and then category 1 and category 2 christians carnal and spiritual and the way to help christians in category 1 is teach them how to move from category 1 to category 2 that's the burden of Keswick theology so here's how I'd depict their view of progressive sanctification See, step 1 is or stage 1 is carnal stage 2 is spiritual The first, they're not spirit-filled, they're defeated. The second, they are spirit-filled, they're victorious. And how do you get from stage one to stage two? The consecration crisis, which is two steps, let go and let God, surrender and faith. Let me briefly walk through this. So the higher life solution is that sanctification by faith results in victory. On what basis? Sanctification is possible because of our union with Christ. Notice it's possible, not actual. Possible. Uh, What is it? Gift, crisis, process. So, the, the sanctification is a gift, but you don't experience the gift until you have a crisis. And once you have the crisis, then the process begins. How do you begin this process with the crisis? You have to appropriate the gift by faith alone. No effort, no struggle. What's the result of this? You get spiritual power. From whom? By whom? The Holy Spirit. And he imparts Christ to the believer and counteracts our spiritual flesh. Counteracting is is a key uh, way of putting this. So again, it's like that toggle switch. The light's all the way on or all the way off. Uh, you have the sinful part of you that is either fully in control or not in control at all. It's Zero or a hundred? So back to where we are in this crisis here. Day three is consecration day. There was a a phrase, no crisis before Wednesday. Days two, one and two, Monday and Tuesday, laid the groundwork for consecration day. And the conditions of consecration are surrender and faith. Let go and let God. What what am I doing next? Okay. So remember what my slides are here. So, oh, there's so much I'm not telling you. I'll just go back to here and and say, do you have any questions about the Keswick view? So we can get to the analysis. Any questions about what is Keswick theology? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, the way uh, that Wesley and subsequent two step folks describe sin is not, I think, how the Bible defines sin. So, the short version is sin is anything that is offending God's white hot holiness, it's anything that's breaking God's moral law, whether you are aware of it or not. I don't, so my view of mankind and sin is that I don't think it's possible prior to God glorifying us for us to be sinless. So right now sin is affecting me to various degrees, my whole person, and even how I'm thinking about answering you. It's hindering me and thinking clearly and making connections. Um, there could be even in my heart, a a kind of pride that's thinking how clever I am for how I'm answering your question. Like there, it's probably, it's probably worse than I'm even aware. Um, I'm not totally depraved, but I'm still depraved. So I'm, just, I'm, I'm not aware of all the ways that I, I'm, I'm, I'm so evil. Um, the way that the two-stage folks talk about sin is not like that. And in their minds, sin is what you are consciously aware of committing that's wrong. That's why Wesley talked about uh, Christian perfection is being free of any known sin which is a lot different than being free from sin. So in this stage, living in victory is living with no awareness of your sin. Uh, So the defeat comes when you're aware of your sin. Am I answering your question? Okay. Any other questions on what Keswick theology is in the back, sir? Um, what What does crisis mean? So a crisis, what I mean by that, what these folks mean by it, is it's a really significant event that happens in a moment. So it's not a gradual thing that happens over days or weeks or years. You can pinpoint it to a day, a time, when there's a sudden change. So they, they actually have several analogies for this. It might help you, and this will be faithful to them. So when they're preaching on this, these are illustrations right out of their sermons. A crisis would be like the beginning point of a line, and the process is the rest of the line, or stepping onto a train and traveling on a train, or matriculating into a school and receiving instruction at the school. I've got like 10 more illustrations, but is that making sense? Okay. Was there another hand over there? No. Yes, sir. What do you mean by spiritual dualism? Well, just how you're going back and forth, almost like Romans chapter 7, how you're going back and forth. Okay. Um, the dual is, I don't know if they, have, they use the word dualism, but they do, maybe you've heard the term, or the illustration of like two dogs, and a black dog, white dog, and it's which one are you feeding, and which one are you starving. Yeah. Okay. The um, idea is you have these two parts of you, And one is either fully in control or not. And the key is for the spirit to be fully in control and for you to counteract the bad part. So here are illustrations of counteracting sin. A hot air balloon without gas rests on the ground. That's the law of sin in the Christian. The law of the spirit in Christ, the hot air balloon then soars above the ground when the gas inflates it. And the law of counteraction is that the hot gas counteracts gravity's effect on the hot air balloon only when the gas abides in the air balloon. So that's an illustration I actually heard John Van Gildern give. Uh, he's a, a higher life theology proponent today who, who got that from Keswick Theology. And there are many more illustrations like that. Good question. Yes, sir? Do you see that kind of, It sounds like all those mad and all those like He's saying, "Is this connected to Armenian theology?" Um, actually, this is this will be interesting. Am I free to use words like Calvinism and Arminism And just assume you know what I mean by them? Probably not. Uh, so. Uh, Armenians are known most distinctly for rejecting the five points of Calvinism, or they actually presented five problems with, our, with, Cal, with, with Reformed theology, and then there's a were called the remonstrance, and then the Synod of Dort counteracted those. That's where we got tulip eventually. Uh, tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. That's what Calvinists today are often known for. Well, Armenians reject all of those, and here's where this gets interesting. I have more in common with an Arminian on progressive sanctification than I do with a Keswick or Chaferian or Pentecostal. Here's what I mean by that. In real life, a Calvinist and an Arminian both take holiness super seriously, like mortify the deeds of your flesh, kill them, fight, persevere, take this seriously. Um, they differ and how do you explain phenomenologically people who fall away? Calvinists would say, well, John, First John 3, they went out from us because they weren't really of us. If they were of us, they wouldn't have gone out from us. But by going out from us, it showed they weren't really of us to begin with, meaning they weren't genuine. The Armenian would say they, they fell away. They were genuine and fell away. So we, we explain apostates differently, but we have the same fervent desire to live holy lives. That's where we have so much in common. With these other two-step views, I'm getting ahead to analysis, um, by having a category of carnal Christian, it means that there's a category of Christians that you don't have to, uh, in, to to exhort. If you don't turn from these sins, you'll go to hell. You can't say that. Are you understanding me? It makes sense. Okay. All right. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, is the idea that this initial stage comes from trying to not invalidate the professions of faith that yeah. have been made at a temperate type? He's saying, do you think stage one is is prominent in this literature because it's related to the camp revivalist meetings, where there are a lot of de- lot of professions, a lot of decisions, and not wanting to say, "Well, they're not Christians," but trying to say, "What do we do with them?" That that might be part of it. Uh, it's hard to say what influenced what. Was it the theology that influenced that? Or by first, it's probably a mix. It goes both ways and reinforces each other. That's a good, good observation. Yes, sir. Where does the crisis come from? Is it something you generate? Or is it something you have to Well, uh, the crisis is something that you're responsible to initiate. Uh, but it's when you do it, you're completely passive. It's not by trying or trusting, it's just, excuse me, it's not by, tr- by trying, it's by trusting. You you passively let God do it, but it won't happen until you let God do it. And if you're feeling, wait a second, something's up there. We're going to we're come to that. But you're, that's it. Okay. You're understanding. Other questions about what it is? Ma'am. Would they describe a carnal Christian as dead in their sins? No. Uh, An unbeliever is dead in his trespasses and sins. He's a Christian. He's just carnal. Yeah, he could dedicate himself. He just needs to do that. All right. Let's, Let's critique. And let's see. We have about 20 minutes. All right. So we'll evaluate this. Thank you, sir. Just curious, why did you give me this? So we can know... So you can just know that I wrote it? <laughs> yes. Thank you. So okay. So I was told you needed it. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Um, before I critique it, I'm share that it's not all bad. Keswick theology is good, or it has at least five commendable characteristics. One, it exalts Christ. Um, I just don't want to gloss over this. It, they are constantly saying, depend on Christ, not yourself. There's a reason that this really appeals to Christians and doesn't always sound like, oh, that's bad. Well, because of that. Uh, second, it's warmly devotional. Uh, it's better, I think, to be a God loving, holiness pursuing Christian who affirms higher life theology than a professing Christian who's theologically accurate but cold-hearted and immoral. Third, it emphasizes that Christians must practice spiritual disciplines. So, they're really big on this. Uh, Remember, when they have the Keswick Convention, it's a whole week where they would say, come, don't read the newspaper, just read the Bible, pray, listen to sermons, uh, rest. Uh, Of course, don't bring your cell phones, 1875. Uh, it, it was it was cultivating spiritual disciplines. And even if you, I think, click everything in the wrong categories and explain it all wrongly, still good can come out of that when you're saying read the Bible and pray. So that's good. Uh, four, it affirms fundamental orthodoxy. It's not heresy. I don't think that, that if you believe Keswick theology that you're a heretic, that you'll go to hell because of that. I think it's wrong, it's harmful, it's not right, uh, but they still affirm the deity of Christ, the, the trinity. They, they affirm fundamental orthodoxy. So they are, they are brothers and sisters. And five, it has a legacy of faithful Christian leaders like Hudson Taylor, um, H.C.G. Moore, W.H. Griffith Thomas. Um, and, and sometimes this is the, actually the emotional sticking point for people is some of my heroes are associated with Keswick theology. How can that be wrong? And this, that's just never the right way to figure out truth, is when, when Christians disagree on a matter, kind of tally up, okay, which has the most guys I like on it, which, which has more on their team? Oh, that, that view is probably correct. That doesn't determine the truth. What determines truth is what does God say? What's reality? That's what matters. And it might mean that some people that did good things that we respect are wrong in an area and surely and the new heavens and new earth will look back and recognize areas that we were wrong in certain areas I don't know what they are right now Uh, I I know what they are for your church I don't know what they are for for me Um, but uh, anyway I love you guys I love you guys All right. so here are ten reasons that higher life theology is harmful we could spend hours on the first one the first one is the most important one the first one is the only reason we need Uh, Everything else is just additional. Uh, But the first one, actually in my book, is a whole chapter on reason one, and the next chapter is two through ten. Reason one is the fundamental linchpin issue. Uh, The problem with higher life theology is that it creates two categories of Christians in a way that the Bible doesn't. So I'm going to explain this in five quick steps. I'm going to have to go quickly. So first, some Christians are justified, but not being sanctified, and others are both justified and being sanctified. That's higher life theology. According to the New New Testament, all Christians are both justified and being sanctified. I'll come back to this, but I just want to highlight that first row here. So let's talk about sanctification. There are three tenses of sanctification. I've tried to, throughout this talk, when I refer to sanctification, say progressive sanctification to denote the middle category. So past is definitive or positional sanctification. That occurs simultaneously with conversion or, or, or ju- and with justification. You could say, I am sanctified. I've been sanctified. I'm St. Andrew. Like that happens when you become a Christian. God sets you apart from sin's penalty and from your old self and Adam. So all of you, if you're Christians, are definitively Sanctified. Normally, in our, the way we talk, when we say sanctification, we mean the middle one, progressive sanctification. I'm being sanctified. God gradually sets a Christian apart from sin's power and practice. And then there's a future sanctification, which is glorification. I will be sanctified. God sets a Christian apart from sin's presence and possibility. That's coming. So with that framework, look at this. So this is comparing, I think, what the New Testament teaches about the, the relation between justification and progressive sanctification. So the quality. When when God justifies you, and I define justification as God declaring you to be righteous in Christ, because of Christ, justification is instantly being declared righteous. Instantly. You're not partially justified. You're not progressively justified. You either are or you aren't. But for progressive sanctification, you're gradually made righteous. Declared versus made. Huge difference. I think it's a huge mistake to say that justification means that God makes us righteous. Justification is not transformative. It's legal. It's forensic. It's a declaration that results in transformation. But justification itself is an instant declaration. It's objective, judicial, legal versus subjective, experiential, and a daily experience. Justification is external, outside you. Progressive sanctification is internal, inside you. Justification is Christ's righteousness imputed, received judicially, versus Christ's righteousness imparted, worked out experientially. I'm planning to preach in my school's chapel uh, next month, and the title I was just given was uh, Justice. Justice imparted, justice imputed, or, or no, no, justice imputed, justice imparted, and justice public. So we're talking about justification, progressive sanctification, and why Christians care about real justice and why that's not the same thing as wokeness. Uh, that, so it's all related. Uh, so justification doesn't change your character. Progressive sanctification does. I think I missed instantly removed since guilt and penalty versus gradually removed since pollution and power. You seen the difference in the, in the quality between the two? Okay, and then quantity. For justification, all Christians share the same legal standing. For progressive sanctification, Christians are at different stages of growth and in different areas. And for duration, justification is single, instantaneous, completed act, once for all time, never repeated. Progressive sanctification is a continuing process, gradual, maturing, lifelong. This is huge. Huge, huge, huge. You get this, uh, if, if this is what I'm presenting is true, the whole house of cards falls for all two-step views of progressive sanctification. Wesleyan, Keswick, Pentecostal, Chaferian. They need... This this does not fit with any of those. Now let's talk about the carnal spiritual Christian. I'm mean, going to have to go real fast here. Um, this is how I think all Christians fit. and Excuse me, all people fit. You're either not a Christian or you're a Christian. You're either unregenerate or regenerate. Unbelieving or believing. Unrepentant or repentant. Unconverted or converted. Natural. Or spiritual. Everybody. And someone might ask, so First Corinthians 2 and 3 does contrast spiritual and carnal. So God means something. What's going on there? So this is what's called the reform view of progressive sanctification. When you become a Christian, you convert, you are a spiritual person. That translates to the Greek word pneumatikos, which just means you have the spirit. Natural, psukikos means you don't have the Spirit. Either you do or you don't. Natural or spiritual. A spiritual person, a person with the Spirit, submits to Christ as Savior and Lord. You submit to Christ as, as the whole Christ, not part of Christ. Him, and He's Savior and Lord. You may at times live like a carnal person in some areas, but you'll inevitably grow through the means of grace. So in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3 the Corinthians whom Paul was rebuking were being carnal in how they were thinking about their spiritual leaders. I'm a Paul, I'm a Apollos, I'm a Cephas, some of Christ. They were being worldly in their ideology and in that issue, but not every issue. So I would say they're probably, if you put on a continuum, for each person who's a Christian, there are various areas in which you are carnal, worldly, in your thinking and living, to some degree, in which you could improve. So it's not like a, a toggle switch again. Uh, so that's the, the second line. Some Christians are spiritual. I would say all Christians are spiritual. The higher life would say you have to become spiritual. I'd say everyone is spiritual in the sense that they have the spirit. All Christians have the spirit. None are permanently carnal. Now you say, how, well, then how do you preach First Corinthians? Uh, I'd preach it by saying, don't be carnal in this area. And if you continually live like that, you won't have any basis for assurance of salvation. And if sin characterizes your life, you're probably not a Christian. That, that's where it goes. So it's not, oh, you're just a carnal Christian. It'd be better if you're spiritual, but you're still going to heaven. Like, that way of thinking is not in the New Testament. Uh, third line down. He's talking about spirit baptism. Oh, okay, so some of the Keswick uh, proponents would say that spirit baptism happens subsequent to conversion. Uh, some of them didn't say that, uh, but for the ones who did, I'd, I'd argue back: all Christians are spirit baptized, and I make that case from several passages, especially First Corinthians 12. I'm hearing people. Am I going overtime? Do I need to stop? I'm okay. All right. I don't want to do with the visitor thing where I go long. So like 10 more minutes? Is that good? Okay. All right. And then fourth line down. Some uh, Keswick would say some Christians are not spirit-filled and others are spirit-filled. So let me, let me pause here because this one might just give you some clarification just really, really quickly. Um, what does be filled mean? If you contrast that with being drunk with wine, I think it, it helps you. Being filled means to be strongly influenced. Strongly influenced. It doesn't mean complete control. It means strong influence. What does with the Spirit mean? Is it like filling a pool with water versus filling a pool with a hose, content, and means? Uh, I lean towards it being means, be filled by means of the Spirit. Uh, what are the results of Spirit filling? Remember in, first, in, in Ephesians Five, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. And they have these five participles, I-N-G words, like, like uh, singing songs to him, spiritual songs, submitting to one another. Those those are results of Spirit filling, those, those five participles. Are all Christians Spirit filled? This is where you might be surprised by my answer. I think the answer is yes. And you might say, well, that guy can't be Spirit filled. I'd say he's... If he's a Christian, the Spirit is influencing him to various degrees. The question is, to what degree? It's not, it's not like all or nothing. This room looks like it has dimmer switches. I'm guessing these things on the side dim. Uh, and I, that's how I think Spirit filling works. It's like a dimmer switch. It's not all or nothing. It's not like a toggle switch. It's to what degree is the Holy Spirit influencing you? And you'd say, well, doesn't a command imply that you either obey it or disobey it? Like if I say to my daughter, sit down. Pretty much she's going to either obey that or disobey it. If I you know, say, go brush your teeth, she'll obey it or disobey it. But what do you do with a command like make disciples of all the nations? How are you doing? Are you obeying it or disobeying it? Or don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Or glorify God in your body. Or do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. You're obeying that or disobeying it? And you're thinking, okay, okay. So there are some commands that it's not toggle switch. It's not all or nothing. And interestingly, in Ephesians, there's a bunch of these, and they build up to Ephesians 5. So Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. 5.1, be imitators of God. 5.2, walk in love. 5.8, walk as children of light. 5.15, look carefully how you walk. 5.17, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Next line, be filled by the Spirit. And then it keeps going. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That's all in the context of Ephesians 5.18. A bunch of commands that are not all or nothing, but you can obey them to various degrees. Similarly, I'd say the same thing for abiding in Christ. Many people assume that the, the command, abide in Christ, is something that only the second-stage Christians obey. You hear me? You know what I'm talking about? Like, you read that and you think, oh, yeah, I need to do that. I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm, either, I'm either obeying it fully or I'm not obeying it at all. And, the, and maybe if we didn't translate it abide, if we just translated it remain, that's what the word means, remain, it'd be helpful. Remain, Continue. Continue in Christ, remain in Christ. Uh, boy, I uh, I can't do this. Uh, were you? I'll just I'll give you the gist here. Um, here's here's how I would understand that command: Abide in me would mean obey my words, and I abide in you. The command I mean, I must abide in you means let my words remain in you. Again, I would argue that all Christians obey this to various degrees. I'm going to tick through these really quickly and with any remaining time we can do Q&A Q and, and you can go if you need to. So here are the other uh, reasons I think higher life theology is harmful. It's a form of perfectionism. It has a shallow and incomplete view of sin, which we talked about earlier. Third, it's a form of quietism. As we talked about a moment ago, it emphasizes passivity, not activity. I think Packer, J. I. Packer said it really well when he said it's don't say let go and let God. Better is trust God and get going. That's five, it's a form of plagianism. It's not plagianism, but I would say it's a form of, I mean, it's, it's emphasizing free will as the mechanism that starts and stops sanctification. So just ask, what is the fundamental reason that some people are in stage two and not stage one? It's because they decided to let God take them to stage two. And, well, before I go to that one, just think of that. It's, it's actually, logically, uh, it doesn't make sense. Because if you're sinning, it's because you're not in stage two, and you don't let God take over. So when you let him take over, he's taken over. So then when you sin, who's responsible for the sin? How's that work? I, but I let him take over. So you can retake over yeah it's it's weird uh five It's a misreading. Uh, our brother mentioned the hes tense form in Romans twelve one that's an example uh, They also in their sermons regularly base their two-step view of Christian living off of stories um, like the, so stories in the Bible are, are often the easiest to wrongly interpret and fit into a different paradigm. Six false assurance. it assures spurious Christians that they're saved. The whole idea of there being a category of carnal Christians teaches people, I can have my ticket to heaven and be carnal, and I'm good. Now, right, it would please God more if I were spiritual, but it's not like hell is a prospect for me. It's not like I'm in danger or anything. That whole way of thinking is just, it's not a Bible way of thinking. Seven. Oh, that's talking more about assurance. Sorry, I'm going fast. Methodology. It uses superficial formulas for instantaneous sanctification. So I've I've got a list of of quotes from sermons where it's like two ways to be spirit filled, three ways to be spirit filled, four ways to be like seriously the same thing but like different steps for, and it's formulas, formulas, formulas. And the idea is you follow the formula, you'll experience it instantaneously. Eight addiction it fosters dependency on experiences at special meetings. Keswick was a yearly conference. A lot of people it's. Uh, it's a weekly thing where you've got to come forward and dedicate yourself again or go to the camp each year. It's, it's, the idea is real Christian growth happens at this special meeting, and that's when I get my spiritual high, and that's just not the case. Now, big meetings, we're about to go to one, they're great, and they are a means of growth, an essential means of growth. But that's not where it all happens. That's where some of it happens. It, it happens as you fellowship with other believers. It happens as you read the Bible and pray and repent and just live it out all week long. Uh, it's wrong to tie it to special meetings. Nine, mistreatment. It frustrates and disillusions the have-nots. J.I. Packer has uh, just a devastating story to tell of his experience trying to do this and then the Puritans rescuing him. And finally, spin. It misinterprets personal experiences. You might say, "Well, I, I've experienced this. I've experienced this second blessing. I've lived at this in, the, in stage two, in, in category two. And my response would be, well, I, I, I'm not going to doubt your genuine experience of the Lord's blessing. What I'm questioning is your paradigm for explaining it. It'd be like if I asked, asked someone, I'll pick you, do you remember what you had for dinner five years ago today? That proves that you didn't eat on that day. It's like you don't have to remember every meal you've eaten to know that You've been eating. You're alive. Right? And we don't have to remember every distinct step of growth in our Christian life to know we're alive. But God's been sustaining us. And here's what some people do they remember a meal. The meal that my wife and I, well, at least I most distinctly enjoy, I just finished uh, some comprehensive exams. And went to celebrate. Uh, C.J. Mahaney had sent me a gift card to some restaurant I never heard of called Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Like, hey, it's for 50 bucks. We can go like three times. And uh, we split an entree. And uh, But that steak, I still remember it. It was the best steak I've ever eaten. Fireworks going off. I remember that meal. It's one of like 10 meals in my life I can remember. Uh, some people remember their Christian life this way. They remember an experience where a significant step of growth happened, and then they tell their story that way. It would be so foolish of me to say, here's how the Lord has sustained me over these many years. I went to Ruth Chris Steakhouse. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I just think it's, it's, it's misinterpreting your experiences. And I will pause there and tell you what, it, I feel like you guys are needing to go. So I'll just stay here and talk. And I'll keep this on if you want to stay where you're sit- sitting to listen. But if you need to go, please go. Do you want to say something? Yeah, yeah. I'll just say quickly, um, if we could thank Dr. Naselli yep. for his time. Um, the, the, uh, the bookstore employee was told to come up and give this book to, to Jeremy, which is me, uh, which yes. is uh, the kindest compliment of my life that he mistook me for Dr. Nisseli. So I'll take it. Uh, your resume as well. Um, his book, No Quick Fix, is $16 on Amazon. It's under $5 at the bookstore today. So you, you want to pick up a copy of this wow. um, and, and take advantage of that. So Dr. Nisseli, thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure. Um, you are dismissed. Um, but again, as Dr. Nisseli said, you can come up and speak to him afterwards. Thank you so much. Thank you.